right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited business owners become educated and get access to private investments to help them build their legacy. I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we have on the show Hans Box uh, joining us. Thanks. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pascal. Great to be here. A little bit of background on Hans. Uh, he is the partner at Box Wilson Equity, a firm that focuses on cash flow and value add investments. Uh, and he's also the senior director at Old Capital Lending, which is a, a real estate lending company in the Texas market. He's personally been involved in the acquisition, investment, and management of over $350 million of multifamily and self-storage assets. Uh, he's managed over 3,700 multifamily units and has been the GP in over 4,300 multifamily and 2,000 self-storage unit uh, deals. He's been investing in private investments since 2008 has invested in over $10 million uh, in over 65 different deals as an LP. And today, private placements make up his entire portfolio, with uh, his favorite asset classes being ones that, that generate cash flow. Uh, so, so going back to the initial question here, you started in 2008. Before that, you weren't invested in private investments. So what happened? Why, why that transition in 2008? Sure. I mean, it was really two things. It was one, you know, as we all know, the great uh, the, the financial recession there in 2008 uh, started happening. And it was a good time to buy real estate if you had money because uh, assets got cheaper. And I had just joined a local uh, mentor group to teach you how to invest in, in real estate. The, many of those are around now, but this was a group that was had been around since oh the 90s or so. And I started buying rent homes mainly because I wanted to create passive income, and um, and uh, I was afraid of losing my job, honestly, because it was happening around the country, and it was a, a good way to make make mail, mailbox money, as they put it, right? And so that's what that's what got me started. It kind of got me the taste of it. Okay, and I'm assuming that eventually you learned that uh, real estate was anything but mailbox money. <laughs> yeah, especially single family rent homes that are foreclosed on. Right. So uh, there's definitely, yeah. definitely a lot of work up front on those deals. Um, but once you did the work and, and got a good renter in, it, it really was pretty, pretty, uh, uh, you know, low intensity in terms of my time because I was still holding down. I'm a CPA. I was holding down a, uh, a job there with a big four accounting firm. And um, but that's when I started learning more about multifamily. And then you could actually pure, invest purely passively with another sponsor and be a true LP where you didn't have to do anything. So what made you, so you started out, you bought your first single family home uh, and then maybe you started buying a couple more. What was the trigger to start investing fully passively in other people's deals? Well, the, the, the main trigger was I wanted, at the time I didn't have the money to invest a ton of an LP. So my goal was to get into real estate full time uh, I, I didn't want to, I was worried about getting laid off. I didn't love my job. It was good. It paid well, you know, it's a professional consulting job. It was great, but I didn't love it. And I was young enough at the time and didn't have a lot of responsibilities where I could take some risks. And I decided to quit my job in 2009 or 10 and go work with a guy that was going to mentor me in multifamily and teach me how to invest in multifamily as an owner, as a sponsor, as a GP, possibly. Um, and in return, I was going to fix his accounting because it was a disaster. 
Um, and he owned about six, 700 units at the time, but it, you know, so he kind of knew multifamily, or at least I thought he did. And that was the, that was the whole goal. So I quit my job, you know, basically took a massive pay cut or basically it took no pay and, and went and, uh, and kind of partnered with him on that. And that's, that's how I got my taste of, of being a GP and, and investing as, a, as an LP in, in a first couple of his deals. And it's a long story, but that's, that's actually what kicked off my career in, in multifamily real estate. Got it. So, so one of the things that I hear is a recurring trend, uh, as I'm talking to prospective LPs, uh, is this concern around, you know, they've never invested as an LP before into one of these private deals. And the first time before you go into any of these deals, you have some sort of fear or, um, you know, there's something holding you back. Uh, and it's easier to keep doing whatever you're doing, whether that's uh, investing more money in the stock market or uh, buying more uh, real estate deals personally instead of being uh, a passive investor. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, through this kind of mentorship of, of this guy, uh, that's kind of how you got into it. Did you still? I mean, walk us through that, like walk through your perspective in your head about like the fear that you had of going into one of these deals. Yeah, I mean, so my I mean, the way I got started was a little bit different than when probably a lot of people that are your listeners are getting started because many of your listeners have a, lot, have a lot of money, but they are afraid to do their first deal. In my case, my first LP investment was my, you know, it was basically all of my money at the time. I was young. I didn't want to be get a W two the rest of my life, and I was like, I thought, you know, what the heck? I'll I'll take a shot here. I'm not dumb. I can figure it out, right? I can read a P and L. I did have an advantage in that I am a CPA by background, so looking at financial statements and things like that, you know, come a little bit more naturally to me because I I just had the experience. But it's not rocket science, right? So I, I got into a deal with him. And long story short, he wasn't really as good of an operator as he made out to be. He's a better salesman than operator, as you know, many of these sponsors are, which is the point of your podcast, right? Um, and I learned my lesson. I ended up taking over the deal from uh, from him. Uh, the other LPs voted myself and another passive uh, LP to take over the deal because it wasn't performing. And that's how I learned feet to the fire. So um, that that other passive investor, the the one that uh, took over the deal along with me, is now my business partner. And uh, you know, we went from there and started being GPs and sponsors and other deals. And um, but I saw, you know, as a GP, I saw the advantages of being an LP, uh, as your question, you know, alluded to, because my investors who had some money. We're making good returns from us and not having to do anything except just, you know, basically trust us, obviously, and, and wire us the money. And so you, I saw that. And as I began, began to accumulate assets and money as we did deals and did better and better, I was able to then deploy that money in, and be a passive investor in other deals. And because I know real estate now, I got comfortable slowly investing in other asset classes beyond multifamily. But like any of them, I had to learn each asset class, at least to a degree, uh, to feel comfortable investing in that asset class, right? So to me, I look at it as being a second job for me. You know, I earn, you know, I actively am a GP still, but I spend just as much time or maybe, you know, sometimes it feels like more time 
looking at other people's deals to invest in, right? Because I, I've got a lot of my net worth tied up in other people's deals. So it's a great way to make money, but you have to learn how to read a PL. You have to learn how to vet a deal itself at a high level. And most importantly, you have to learn how to vet uh, people and other sponsors. Couple things to unpack in there. Uh, you know, not to pick on, pick on this GP, but what I'm wondering at what point you realized that uh, the GP wasn't a great operator and, and like, maybe like, what are the lessons learned from that that you now look for Mm -hmm. in deals moving forward? Yeah. So, I mean, it was less than a year in kind of figured that out. He wouldn't change the management companies weren't, wasn't doing their job. The deal wasn't uh, occupied as highly as it should have been. He spent too much money on rehab over rehab, the deal, things like that. And it was getting obvious that the deal was not following the business plan and the pro forma. Right. And so that's when we realized it and then pressured, you know, basically pushed him out and, and hired the right management company that helped us turn the deal around. And we were successful, sold it for a decent gain at the time. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing that I took away from that entire experience was being conservative. It's caused my entire investment philosophy to be much more conservative. And I don't, I don't trust anymore as much as I might have before. And I learned that I really do have to know the deal and get to know the person um, and not just rely on what's in a business plan. I've got to dive deep and ask some, ask some good questions. And it, it kind of shaped my investment philosophy going forward because I almost lost my most of my money that I had at the time in this deal and a couple, two deals that I was in with him. And so it caused me to be very conservative and it served me well so far. Obviously we've all invested in deals that haven't done well, but I luckily have kept those, you know, at a relative minimum and, um, and, and plan to do the same. And that's why I look for, it, it really forced me to invest for singles and doubles, which is kind of my philosophy. I don't care about home runs. It's great if it happens, but it's all about cash flow and hitting singles and doubles. That's it. it it'll snowball from there. How did you learn about that? So, you know, I'm imagining you're sitting at your computer at your house and you get monthly or quarterly updates from that general partner and as, as well as all the other investors. And, and somehow you're, it may, maybe the GP saying we're behind budget or, and we're, you know, behind schedule. And then that's when the group of the LP, like explain that so not, that hasn't happened to me before. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to understand, you know, like uh, in any of the deals I'm in, I wouldn't know the first, I guess, depending on the asset class, but like, I wouldn't know the first thing I would do um, or, or how that even comes about. Like, I don't know who the other LPs are. I don't know how I would, how I would message them and be like, do we think this guy's doing a good job? And then do we think he's going to, like, should we kick him out? Like, how does that play out? Well, back then, it was maybe a little bit different then. Number one, we, we knew all the other investors. We had investor meetings where everyone would sit literally in one of the units. They'd have chairs set up and we went into one of the vacant units and had an investor meeting. And so this was happening on a, I don't know, somewhat regular basis, maybe once a quarter or something like that. So we knew our other investors and most of the other investors were from the same uh, uh, mentor group. So we, we were quite familiar with most of them. You know, we got financials. We knew what the business plan was. We knew what the occupancy was. And 
it was pretty obvious to see that we were well behind and he wasn't making the changes he should make. Um, obviously, I had a little bit of an inside track because I was helping him with his other deals, right? And so that that gave me a little bit of an inside knowledge and I was doing the accounting, obviously. So that was obvious to me. But in short, anybody can see it. If you look at a pro- profit and loss statement and look at the pro forma, are they anywhere near their pro forma? Is their occupancy where it should be trending based on what they told you in the business plan. And you just start asking good questions. And, and uh, you know, this other investor that was part of this deal was also pretty analytical engineering degree. So he was asking good questions as well. And we just naturally started talking. And, and because we already knew the other group, we decided we had to do something to save our capital. And that's when we, we you know, basically sent out an email and called the investors to a meeting and said, let's vote on this and figure it out. So there was a lot of behind the scenes stuff, talking to investors sure. before we did it, right? But luckily we had contact information and I know a lot of deals nowadays, you don't know that. And But in fact, our deals right now still, we put out um, uh, company agreements that are fully executed and has every investor's name and their address on it. Um, so everyone knows everyone, you know, who everyone is. So if, they get together and decide they don't like me and my business partner anymore, or we've done something that's negligent or fraudulent, or they feel like we're not performing, then they have every right to question it and get together as, as partners because you're all in the same bed here. And, um, you know, keeping investor information from uh, fellow LPs is, to me is wrong for sponsors to do. I understand that that you need to keep things private, but at the same time, it should there should be a methodology of making it available when it's needed. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually something I haven't come across yet, but an interesting idea of like staking. I mean, like it's pretty much a, a position or a value prop as a general partner if you're trying to recruit LPs. Like, hey, I let you know everyone else is in the deal. I, I mean, I guess I don't know how they would market that or if that's even something that you would talk it's, about. But yeah, um, it's not something we market. But you know, you're not going to get that ability in these massive hundred million dollar funds. But when you're doing a an, one apartment deal and raising $5 million, to me, you should have every right to know who the other LPs are. And if you don't know them right off, there needs to be something set up in the docs where you can request it and and people can provide their information that they feel safe providing, like an email address and a name or something, maybe not their address, right? Do you think that's a deal breaker for you it's moving forward? Not like anymore. Deals don't have that? Not anymore. It used to be, if I, if I invested with a kind of a new sponsor that was doing their you know, second, third, fourth deal, small deals, um, and don't have much of a track record and they refuse, you know, to provide a, a way, then yeah, it would be a deal breaker for me. If I'm investing in a $200 million industrial spec fund, I'm not going to get it right. They're not going to give me that information for my little, you know, $100,000 investment. So uh, it, it's really a case by case basis where I would push for something like that. So, you got into these deals, you got into this multifamily deal and, and slowly you started, you know, you turned that deal around, you started exploring other asset classes. Walk, you know, it, it's fascinating to me how many people just stick to multifamily mm-hmm. or just stick to real estate. Um, I'd be interested to understand, you know, what's maybe the craziest type of fund you've invested into that's not our tried and true multifamily, you know, like maybe it's a VC or crypto fund or an ATM fund or whatever that might be. And then, and then maybe your rationale for how you picked each asset class. 
to move forward into. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got into self-storage by naturally it's multi-tenant real estate. It's cash flowing real estate. It's very similar to multifamily. It's just storage instead of actual living. Right. Um, and you know, we, we started looking into that because the cap rates had gotten so compressed in multifamily. We weren't, we're very conservative in our underwriting, probably too conservative. I have a lot more money now. If I would have done a lot of deals, I said no to, but it is what it is. Right. And so we got into self storage when the cap rates were, were still a little bit higher, quite a bit higher than multifamily. Now they've compressed too, but that's how we, that's how we naturally got into self storage. And and because it's it's kind of a natural progression. And then, you know, the other like mobile home parks, same idea. It's multi-tenant real estate, right? It's people where people live. It's the same general idea. And again, those cap rates hadn't compressed. So that's how we stepped into investing into that and, and started being an LP in that. And then it just kind of once you get into the world of it, you know, you start getting on all these lists, you start getting all these offers for deals, right? And you start learning how to how to vet, you know, it, it in general the the way you vet any of these is, is generally the same frame, right? It's a sl- it's slightly different based on on the asset class and, and everything else. And you might ask slightly different questions, but in general, the framework and the questions you need to ask and uh, know about are, are the same on, on across any of these real estate deals. Now you get into VC, private equity, that's different. I know enough about a few of them to be dangerous, but definitely not to be talking about it on a podcast or how to vet a VC deal. That is not my area. Right. I'm definitely real estate. So when I got into those areas, which are probably my craziest, you know, investments, I, I'm in some seed funds, I'm in some VC stuff, but it was with money that I know that I could lose. 100%. And I didn't invest with that. Those are where, where I could take that money and, and be a moonshot, right? I could invest 50, 50 grand and I could make a 10 X possibly, or I could lose every penny of it and it will happen. And it's, in fact, I'm in one where I might lose all my money, but it, I kind of knew that going in, right? And so uh, that's why I stick to for the vast majority of my of my uh, assets are are in real estate and in in value add, which is key. Value add real estate here. Um, there has to be a value add component, or it's not something I would invest in. Talk talk more about that. Why why? Well, because a lot of times you'll hear people say, "Well, you know." Value adds riskier because there's some sort of distress of the asset, and I'd rather just invest in something that has a yield, and it has just a, a they call it a yield play, is the way I've heard people say it. And I completely disagree with that. Um, every real estate deal has to have value add because if it doesn't, that means you can't force equity into the asset in any form or fashion. And if you can't force equity into the asset, you're paying basically retail for the deal. And if the market drops and say we have an occupancy drop or anything else, you haven't basically value add creates a margin of safety. You buy it here, you force equity. So now you've added this much value, right? And that provides a margin of safety between your equity, which is this capital stack here, and the new equity that you created by creating value. So if the market drops by 30%, maybe, maybe the value add goes down, but your equity is still here and protected. But if you've never had that margin of safety and the value drops 30%, you're losing equity. You're the first one to lose money before the lender, right? So to me, there has to be a way to add value, whether that's by raising rents because you're doing interior rehabs or just improving the curb appeal, whether you're raising rents just because they're flat out below market, which is surprisingly, you see it all the time in in all kinds of real estate. Um, Looking at an industrial deal right now that we may partner on and 
they are literally 90% below market in lease and rents right now. Now you got to buy the asset and hold on for a couple of years until it renews. But when it does, you can jack up the rents and the value is forced. You know, a huge amount of value can be forced into the asset. So to me, long story short, it creates a margin of safety. It's safer to invest in something that has distress in some form or fashion where you can force the equity into the deal. Do you also have a strong perspective on the class of the product, whether it's like class A, our luxury apartment buildings versus class C? I imagine you can still find class A distressed assets and value add. Maybe not. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, they're harder to find, right? Um, But my opinion on all that is I don't want, you know, let's take multifamilies to answer your question, try to do it succinctly because this could be a very broad answer, but I typically multifamily would want my ideal asset would be something that I could force value in and is maybe a a B or B minus asset, right? And you can take it to a a B minus to a B or a B plus and a B to a B plus or a minus, something like that. Meaning I don't want to, I typically don't want to invest in say multifamily that was built in the, any time before 1980, because you're starting to get into older assets that are really, you know, approaching 50 years of age that may have uh, older structural things like galvanized pipes and, and boilers and chillers that are very expensive to maintain and replace. And they're just not built as efficiently um, as, as later assets are not built as well. And so they're starting to fall apart and you, you may get a good cap rate on a deal like that. But the reason a cap rate is higher on deals like that is because there's a higher risk. That's the whole point of cap, cap rate. Right. Right. Cap rate. Explain cap rate. Oh, so cap rate. An easy way to think about cap rate is if you paid cash for the deal, that is your return on your annual return on your deal. So basically if I paid, if I wanted to pay say a 10 cap on a, on a $10 million asset, that means I would get a $1 million per year cash flow stream every year, right? I mean, that's not a real example, but it's an easy way, right. easy way yeah. to think about it. So the, the way a cap rate is, is basically if you didn't have any leverage on the deal, what you would make per year as a percent cash on cash return. That's a very simple way to look at it, right? Now, everybody puts debt on the deal, which means when you put debt on the deal, you can increase the returns beyond the cap rate because there's, it's all about the spread between how much your debt is and what your cap rate is. Um, but, you know, long story short on, on the age of the assets, I think you can make money in any asset class, but I think in terms of risk, risk and reward, the middle, the middle of the road, C plus to, to B plus assets are probably the best. You know, if you had to make me pick ages, eighties to early two thousands, right? Because anything newer than early 2000s is still going to be very new, probably doesn't need any repairs, probably still looks pretty and shiny and new. There's not a lot of value add, unless you could find an asset that has low market rate rents or something like that. There's a group that you and I both know that we may invest in where they are buying assets that are, say, built in 2005, 2010, but they have a very specific business plan on the deal where they are, you know, where they're creating, um, they're creating value by uh, getting rid of property taxes through an affordable housing uh, program. Uh, but that's very, very niche, right? And for the most part, C plus to, to B plus assets are, are, the, are the best way to find uh, decent deals. And, and remember, I'd rather get a higher, I'd rather take a, say, a, a 
an asset built in 1995 and make a 15 IRR than I would buy an asset built in 1965 and make a 20. Because you're taking so to me, the risk adjusted return is actually higher on the on the newer asset, even though you're making a higher absolute return on the older asset because you're taking on so much more risk. You're taking on more risk with the older asset. In my opinion, yes, because of deferred maintenance. Typically, older assets are going to have a rougher demographic, a harder tenant uh, demographic to manage. They won't, you know, they'll, they're more sensitive to changes in the economy. They uh, typically, there'll be a lot of bad debt. You know, there'll be more suits. There'll be, be more crime. All of these things, you're taking on more risk and things you have to deal with in order to make an extra 5%. That's not something I would rather do. And then it's just a matter of weighing risk reward, right? So I think for both of us, I could talk about this for hours, right? Uh, I think we both like to nerd out on the specifics and the strategy and the um, like what's the acquisition criteria and, and looking through all the P&L. And there, I think there are two types of investors, ones that are very interested in the intricate details that are super sophisticated, that are trying to, you know, really understand the strategy at a, at a deeper level. And then there's the investors that are new to this game and they're probably listening to this or I'm just picturing myself listening to this uh, two years ago and thinking, wow, there's a lot to digest here. Should I like, I need, I want to invest in private investments, but you know, maybe I should be looking for class C and value add. And like, like how should a new investor be approaching this game? Because it, I, I would argue that it is different and they don't have the, the knowledge or the wherewithal to because they haven't done enough deals yet to know what to ask. So how would you, you know, thinking back to your early self and you're trying to give yourself training wheels, what guidance would you give to someone that's starting out on the journey and trying to figure out who they want to invest with and in what? Yeah. So I mean if I was starting out right now, I think, you know, one of the advantages everyone has now is that it's much more common to see these investments. There's so many more of them out there than there was back when I started. And you can join like CrowdStreet and those kind of crowdfunding platforms and get hundreds of, you know, offering memorandums and PPMs. You can you could spend the rest of the year just reading business plans and and learning about them. So that's one thing. It's it's a very easy way to get free education by actually reading the business plans. Um, I would listen to a ton of podcasts like yours um, and, and basically have my, you know, take notes. And, and when you hear some, you, you hear a nugget or something about what somebody looks for in a deal, write it down and start creating your own acquisition criteria and things that you want to look for in deals. And then practice what you've written down, what you've heard and, and go into these business plans that you, you can get and go look at it and see, can I answer these questions based on this? And if I can't, what questions would I ask? And I would then ask questions of sponsors and get responses and see if, you know, basically you, you only learn by doing. So I think, you know, take a deal and, and actually read the whole thing and ask, you know, do your best to ask as intelligent questions as you can based on your knowledge base and uh, email the sponsor and ask for questions. You will get educated by their answers if they're decent sponsors. And if they won't answer you, you wouldn't want to invest with them anyway. That was another point I wanted to make is there should be complete transparency 
I mean, I'm invested with some people where I'm, I've got 50 or hundred thousand dollars and they're, they're in a, it's a $250 million fund. And they answered every question I had. And I probably was a higher, you know, probably asked more questions than some people that put in 500,000, right? But they answered every question and that made me trust them. And so that means I knew they were going to be transparent and maybe the next deal, I don't ask as many questions because now I understand how they operate. But transparency is huge. And when you send emails to these sponsors, you'll usually get back, if they're good sponsors, you usually get back uh, very comprehensive, uh, clear answers to your questions that are going to help you learn. So I it, number one, it's going to be repetition. Listen to podcasts because those also weren't around when I was here. So I, the mentor group was my only source of knowledge on how to learn about these deals. Um, now you could spend all day listening to podcasts, you know, look at deals, ask questions and go to meetups and then, you know, talk to other LPs. There's all kinds of groups out there where LPs are sharing, uh, deals with each other and talking about the pluses and minuses. There's one called 506 secret out there. That's a public group that anybody can join if you're an accredited investor. And if you spend time in that forum and, uh, learn and, and look at their back and forth and their Q and A with, with each other or with other with their sponsors that they'll put Q and A's in there, you will learn a ton. And there's there's more than one of those out there. So I think there's a ton of avenues right now. I if I was starting over now, I would learn a lot quicker than I than I did. I learned by trial and error. I learned by literally having to sit on site at an apartment and learn what I did wrong in terms of investing in this deal and what you know why it was going bad. So there's a lot of trial and error um, for me, but it's easier now. I think there's a uh, um, a shift that uh, if if you're new to the world of private investments, that you should recognize, which is that when you invest in the public market and you are trying to figure out, do I want to invest in Facebook and LinkedIn and whatever, pick your favorite pu- public company, uh, you can go and look at their you know audited financials and their annual K10 reports and stuff like that. Uh, and then you can see news, uh, but but you're not able to sit down and email Mark Zuckerberg and say, "Hey, Mark, like, why are revenues down, or why why are you projecting this? Like that that just doesn't. I mean, I don't know how that. Uh, I haven't figured out how to do that. So, but whereas in this world of private investments, it's exactly the opposite. It's like you have access to the quote unquote CEO of the deal and you now have this new avenue to to really understand why they're doing what they're doing. That's right. I, I 100% agree. Um, you know, they say that private, you know, obviously the public is supposed to be more transparent because of all the forced documentation out there, but it's almost a point where you can't, yeah, you can get a lot of documentation, but number one, understanding it, it's super complicated. They're super large. You can't actually talk to a person. It's always going to be this formal answer that you're going to get possibly if you talk to their investor relations at Facebook. I mean, what you're not going to get an answer, right? But if you, if I, if I sent you a deal that I'm a sponsor in, but you send me a list of 10 bulleted point questions, I'm going to answer every one of them and then ask you if you want to have a phone call. And, and that's just how the private investment world works. And that's the beauty of it. Um, I, I think, I think if you can find transparent sponsors that'll answer your questions, it, it, it's way better than the public markets, in my opinion. And, and there's less emotion. Yeah. Right. Public public markets are affected by emotion. Uh, you're in an illiquid multifamily deal. There's no emotion here. They're going to sell when it makes the most sense. You can't accidentally sell just because because it's illiquid. So you can't make a dumb emotional decision. 
and emotions and decisions typically should be separated at all times. <laughs> totally. Uh, I have a, I have a, a take or a thesis uh, that I'd be interested in your take on, which is um, I, I've been asking myself this question of if I were to get started again in private investments, what would be the path that I would take? Uh, and the answer that I gave or that I'm currently giving until I hear a better, better response is I actually really like the idea of debt funds. Uh, because when you're, you're investing in a loan, um, that's, or at least the debt funds I'm in, it's backed by an asset and I have, uh, consistent cash flow coming in every single month. And at least the debt funds that I'm in, I have the ability to pull my money out within 90 days. And so, uh, that feels like an easy way to get started get into a PPM, have, have that feeling. And then if I want to change my mind and invest that money that I have in there into something else, now that I've gotten confidence, now that I'm getting monthly distributions, uh, now that I know this is a real thing and I've like just taken that big leap, then I, then I can go invest uh, into assets where my money is going to be tied up for uh, a long time. Uh, what is your take on that strategy? <laughs> well, I've given this zero thought, so you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there weren't actually, I didn't have access to debt funds when I started. So I, I didn't have that problem or that actually that advantage that you have. I like it to a point, but I wouldn't put all my money there to begin with at all. Even if you're spreading, right. even if you're yeah. spreading it out, right? But I think at, like to get your first taste of something, yeah. I think going into a large debt fund and maybe you haven't invested at all and this you're writing your first $50,000 or $100,000 check. Yeah, a debt fund would be is actually, a, if it's a one that's been around a while and has a good track record, is a very good place to get your feet wet and get that mailbox money, as you you know say, you know, in terms of uh, investing. I would probably, you know, so as your first investment, I, I agree with you. I don't disagree with you. I mean, the other... I think anything that you do first, whether it's a debt fund or anything else, needs to have a decent cash flow component to it. Like if I was a new alternative asset investor, I don't think your first move should be investing in, in say, the, the $100 million spec industrial fund that I'm in that actually is going to have really good returns, right? It's probably going to have much higher, it's going to have much higher returns than the debt funds, but it's going to be completely illiquid no cash flow until the deals are built, then they may refinance you out. So I may not even see any money until you're three or four. Um, it's a 10, 15 year hold, or it could be a, a forever hold, right? One of those. So it's, it's a different mentality, right? So I agree with you. Something that shows immediate results, but it, I think, I think everyone should start with cash flow, whether that's five, six, seven, eight, nine, something that, that produces cash flow where you can see results day one. Lip, not literally, but more or less day one. And I mean, 30 days right. is, is what I've In the terms of right? a debt fund, right. But if you invest in a multifamily deal and it's a quarterly payments paying 8%, you may not, you may invest in, in, in say, January or February and not get your first payment until after the second quarter of that same year. And, and then it's a quarterly payment thereafter, which I think is also a great place to start. So anything that has cash flow and people should invest, to me, my personal recommendation is cash flow until you can at least cover your basic 
living expenses. And then you can worry about equity plays and making the big chunk. Okay, I love this. This is uh, this is actually one of the next questions that I uh, and and theses that I have that uh, uh, sounds like you're on a similar track. But let's let's dive in. Which is, I think there's two ways. Um, uh, so I think there's two ways you can think about investing strategy. There are three things that you can invest for when you invest. It is cash flow, equity growth, or tax appreciation. Redu- reducing your taxable income. Um, some deals do one, some deals do all three. An example would be is crypto, you're investing for equity, you're not getting cash flow, you're hoping that things skyrockets. You might invest in a debt fund that you only get cash flow, but no equity growth and no depreciation. Or you could invest in an oil and gas or an ATM fund or an, in- an industrial deal where it has the components of all three. You get the tax depreciation, you get some cash flow, and you um, ideally get some some equity growth at the end. Um, that with the industrial deal, you get the equity growth. With the cash flow and ATM, with the oil and gas and ATMs, you don't get any equity appreciation. So, I think there's two ways that you can think about growing your wealth. The first is you focus on net worth growth, and I think this is the the number one thing that everyone's taught is, you know, put your money to work, have a compound over time, grow the equity uh, over time. And I think that strategy is awesome if you are committed to working your entire career. If you at some point in your career are like, man, I really want to have some passive income. I want to figure out how to get away from my job. Here's what I see. people have a bunch of money in the stock market, let's call it 500K, a million bucks, whatever. And then uh, they start in buying like one or two homes to try and get some passive income. And it's like, okay, well, first off, you're, you are not succinct on your strategy. You're saying now you want cash flow, um, and you're trying to do both things. You have most of your money in the, in the stock market and it's growing. Um, and then you have this cash flow. You're not going to be able to quit your job from buying like one or two homes or investing a small portion of your capital. So to me, I think you are either, hey, I'm going to invest and grow uh, my money, net worth style in the stock market or in whatever private deals until I have enough to convert it to cash flow uh, and have some financial freedom. or some people want to start building that cash flow machine up. So for example, what I've done is I've taken probably most of my money, 80% of it, and put it into cash flowing deals instead of net worth growth because my primary goal was to become financially free. And, and I have the, I'm an entrepreneur. I think it works more for entrepreneurs where I believe that I can make a much higher return building a business than, uh, making my money 10x, which is really hard. Uh, and so that's where I'm at. I've taken to the point where I've, I started, I've invested a ton of money in Tesla, made, made over like 1.5 million bucks, invested 10 years ago, taken that cash and now redeployed it into cash flowing assets to provide me passive income. And now, like I'd say 80% of my portfolio is passive income, which allows me to work on my next thing. And uh, the rest of the money that's left over after I've covered my basic 
you know, expenses, all of that goes into like high risk uh, equity growth things like crypto for me. So that's how I've uh, approached this kind of strategy. And I, I think about investing and I, I'm trying not to dilute, you know, the passive investing or the net worth growth bucket. How do you think about strategy from that perspective? You know, number one, I, I kind of do a component of both. I, I am, I stay away pretty much from the high equity, high risk kind of stuff. Like I said, I, I put a little bit of my, of my play money into that. To me, it almost feels like gambling. Um, money where I could lose tomorrow and it would not affect my lifestyle. That's what I would invest in something like that, where it just, you know, it bothers me, but it doesn't, you know, I can sleep at night, even if I know I'm going to lose it all. I, I literally do stick with um, more singles and doubles that are, when you say high equity growth, what I mean is like seed, seed funds, crypto, things like that, that are higher risk. Um, I do put a significant amount of my money into real estate deals that don't cash flow immediately. But to have a but have that value add, which to me is just as low risk as something that cash flows if they can force the value add and they have enough reserves built in. So long story short, I mean, I'm putting my stuff into mainly real estate uh, and mainly, uh, you know, probably half and half cash flow, non cash flow. And honestly, there are deals that do both, which is the beauty of like the apartment deal I told you about. Or, you know, we have a mobile home park that cash flow is over 12 percent a year. And it's worth double what we paid for it right now. So there was equity growth and there's massive cash flow. There's both. So you can get both in, in these multi-tenant assets. Um, you know, I personally, and this may be go against, you know, the purpose of this podcast, but a lot of people spend a lot of time saying, oh, I'm going to allocate X amount to this asset class and this amount to this kind. I look at the deal and the sponsor, and if it's a good deal with a good sponsor, and it's going to have, and I feel has a good risk adjusted rate of return, I invest. I don't like get, I don't get hung up. Yeah. It, to me, it's a, it's by the uh, deal. I really, you could ask me right oh, now, no, what, man. what percent of my assets are in self storage and mobile home parks and multifamily. And I couldn't tell you right now. I, I have it all written down, but I don't have this pie graph that I'm trying to adjust and keep it, it perfectly, you know, diverse and, and rebalancing it based on what I'm in. To me, it's more about the sponsor and the deal than anything else. So I hear that. I hear that. I think where uh, maybe I take, I have a different perspective is that I, I agree. I look at the sponsor and the deal and then decide to invest, but that's only secondary to my plan. So I think first things first, an investor needs to decide, do, what do I want? to do with my money? Do I want it to double? Do I want it to cash flow? Or do I want to pay less taxes? Um, Cause like, here's, here's how I'm interpreting what you said. Um, you might have a ton of cash flow coming in and you're more than basic needs are met and you really don't need more cash flow, but you see a deal of an investor and it looks like a good deal. So you're in. Whereas to me, I'm like, Hey, my buy box right now is I've covered all my cash flow needs and I'm only looking for things that are high equity growth. And now I'm only looking at deals that fit within the high equity growth buy box. And this other deal might be awesome, but it really doesn't match the objective that I'm personally trying to achieve with my growing my wealth. So you're telling me that you don't have an objective. You're not like, 
oh, I want some more cash flow, or I want to make my money work for me, or I, I need to reduce my taxes. So let me find like deals that have a lot of depreciation. You just have your set of sponsors you follow and you see a good deal and you jump on it, regardless of what those three High level, yes, high level. But I, you know, I won't invest in a deal that basically, you know, my preference is to find a deal that has mid-teens IRR or higher and has a cash flow component. But I am probably not as targeted as what you're saying in terms of of what I'm looking at in terms of the real estate deals per se. And on the depreciation, I kind of have a strong opinion there. And I think there are a lot of people that let the tail wag the dog when it comes to depreciation right now. And I think they're going to be sorry. And, and and not just appreciation, but tax planning in general. Um, I've done tax planning myself, a lot of it. And some of it's just a pain in the ass. And I wish I hadn't done it. It makes my life harder. And it may, may save me a little bit of money here and there, but it wasn't worth the time and the heartache and the brain power to, to, to set it all up. And so I think you have to be very careful about, you know, a lot of people that's the investors will ask me, well, what's an appreciation percentage? I'm like, okay, number one, it's a guess because it depends on the cost set guy and how aggressive he is, right? And they're gonna ch- they can change the laws any day, right? And you're gonna end up paying that tax back. It's depreciate. It's called recapture. You're not avoiding taxes. You're only gonna you're only prolonging it. And guess what? Do you think capital gain? Do you think recapture rates are gonna go down or up over the next five years based on the way our country is performing and our debt load? I think you know, rates are going to go up. So if I'm paying a 25% rate now or 20%, say this year, I paid around a 20% cash, a 20% tax rate. I had an opportunity to save money there and not pay some of that. But I'm like, in the future, am I going to ever get to pay 20% again? No, they're going to take more than that away from me. So I may as well pay the piper now and have that money be free and clear. Um, so I, I do care about depreciation. It's great to get. But I certainly, that is like five or six on the list. I, I really do not let that uh, make a decision for me at all. And a lot of people do. And they look at their returns as if they made that extra money. And you're not. You're going you're gonna to pay a higher rate than you're paying now. I guarantee it. And so to me, I, you know, I don't have. But a- there's something to be said for the velocity of money, right? Like sure. being able to redeploy that money that you would have paid in tax this year. Five years from now. Yeah, if you're good, if you have options to de- redeploy it and make a, a a good return, that's yes. You there's definitely something to be said for velocity of money. I don't I don't disagree with that at all. Um, but I'm just saying, don't let the tail wag the dog kind of situation. Um, the deal has to work yeah. without the depre- like. To me, that I would invest in in any of these deals without the depreciation. It has to be that way, or I wouldn't invest. Period. Depreciation's gravy is what it is to me. Yeah, I mean, something that you said that some investors let the the tail wag the dog. Uh, I, I, what I have, I think I know what you mean by that, but but give an example of what that means to you. Well, I mean, if, for instance, they'll be looking at two deals, and one sponsor will promise them 120 percent depreciation because it's a mobile home park fund. Actually, that probably can't even happen anymore because the, the laws have gone down to 80 percent. But yeah, a higher depreciation and Asset two is multifamily, and they can only get you 50%. Let's say the overall returns are very similar in terms of the projections. A lot of investors will just automatically pick this multifamily deal, even though maybe the multifamily deal is better because it's in a better market with a stronger sponsor with a better 
uh, with a better track You mean track the, the mobile home park deal has higher depreciation, but people will choose that instead of- Just automatically, home. yes, because it has higher depreciation, they can get a higher depreciation. Instead of actually looking at the deals, take the depreciation away, look at the deals just by the deals, by the sponsor and the asset, the market, the value add, the risk you're taking to get X return. They will take the depreciation and, and they will let that be the deciding factor a lot. I've had investors- you know, look at one of our deals that had the same returns as other deals, but maybe we, we put a little bit less depreciation because we want to be conservative. And they're like, oh, I need more depreciation, so I'm not investing in that deal. I'm going to go invest in this deal because I need depreciation. Well, that's not the reason you should invest. That may be an added advantage, but you should invest because that fits your, like you're saying, your investment criteria or your portfolio allocation that you, you set up for yourself. That's why you should invest. It should have nothing to do, really, to me. Appreciation could be a factor. but you would you should be able to you should want to invest in that deal regardless of whether or not you're going to get the appreciation it should be a good investment is my point that's the, yeah i mean i i agree it's it's interesting because i'm playing back in my head i feel like this happens every year october november december people the groups that yes, we're in yeah they jump into deals because they're trying to get that last little bit of appreciation and maybe those maybe they shouldn't invest in that deal in december they should have waited until february when a better deal came out but yeah i mean that, to me, that's not smart. I, I, I don't agree with that. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I mean, I get it from their perspective of like, wow, I have a lot of taxable income and I need to figure out how to reduce it. Um, good topic to put a pin on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I think we'll and be And it matters more one. for somebody that's paying a massively high rate versus me that has mostly real estate income and is paying a cap gains rate, basically. You know, So it, it, it does matter. If my rate was 35, I'd care a lot more, right? Yeah. And I think something to highlight for anyone who's listening is the more and more I get into this, I realize how, I mean, I always knew investing was personal, but I, I think I realize it more and more now because everyone's situation is different. You know, if you're a, if you're an attorney and you make, you know, a ton of money and it's at a really high tax rate, like how you invest in your strategy is probably very different than the way Hans and I uh, invest. Um, just because we have different needs and like we also uh, Hans and I probably have different expertise than a physician, for example, um, just because this is what we like to do all day. Um, so just just that kind of caveat there. Uh, what's been the worst deal you've invested in that's gone sideways and why? Real estate. I mean, any any LP position. There's LP positions I'm in that are operating companies that I may lose my entire investment. Right. And it was the one of those ones where I was I put money in that uh, was more like play money and in that. So that's probably my my worst, per se, uh, investment real estate wise. That first deal that I got into the apartment deal where I didn't know how to vet. That was not a good investment. I saved it by, you know, hard work and a little bit of luck. Right. And taking over the deal. But. Looking back, that was not a smart investment because I didn't know what I was doing. I was so green. I, I, I had never invested in a deal before. Um, and I'm also, one other deal that I'm in, my one foreign deal I'm in, it has nothing to do with being a foreign investment, but it's in a hotel deal and it's not doing well at all. Like, I think I'm going to get back 80% of my money if I'm lucky, you know, and it's going to be drawn and out. And it sounds like that's a recent deal. Um, well, so... it wasn't recently invested, but yes, it was invested back in 2014. And we're finally realizing some of our money back right now. And we might get 80% back. So over the course of a decade, I'm going to have, you know, $125,000 locked up and I'm going to get 80% of it back if I'm lucky. 
So it's not a good investment at all. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I was green. that one. I, it was, uh, I, it was also when I was getting started, I was new. And I think my key one on that one is don't let your emotions get in the way. I saw the deal. It was in a beautiful area. I went and visited it and you get caught up in the emotion and like, Oh, this is beautiful. This is cool. It's going to have great cash flow, And it's, I can go use it as an, as a, a lifestyle choice. Cause I'm invested in this. So you get discounts, right. As a hotel. And I should not have let any of that factor my, my thought process. And it did. It really did. Um, anytime I, I want unsexy deals that are boring as hell that I don't even want to visit. That's what I want. And I want sponsors that aren't sales guys that just talk the numbers and aren't really the more flash and the more polish you have in like your website. And like, you can just tell websites where people spend a lot of time on the website, but not actually investing. And I try to avoid that kind of stuff. Now I I want people that are concentrating on operating the assets and are boring to talk to because they're just going to tell me about the P and L. Totally. (laughs) Has your, has your, uh, has your strategy changed over time about how you invest? Like, did you previously invest more for cash flow, and you know now you're doing yeah. riskier things? Or yeah, yeah. How 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 has that transition? I was definitely out? heavier cash flow for a long time, um, and you know I get to a certain point where now I I still run my own business, right? So I have money coming in through being a sponsor and and, and doing my own deals. Um, so I'm not as concerned, you know. 10 years ago, I was concerned with the cash flow only. That's where I wanted it was cash flow, cash flow. Now I'm investing in stuff like, like this industrial fund where I'm not going to get anything for a while or other industrial deals that I'm in that, that have a long, you know, runway that takes some time for, because they're long leases in, in that asset class. Um, I'm not as concerned with cash flow anymore. Although I will say, you know, you put a cash flow deal at 15 IRR that has an 8% cash on cash in front of me versus a 20% IRR deal that has no cash flow. I'll choose the 15% with cash flow all day long still. Um, to me, I just, I, you get that cash coming in. And, and like you said, it's also a velocity of money, right? So yeah, you're getting checks coming in. You can take that money and you can reinvest it. Um, so cash flow is creates velocity of money as well, if you have enough of it. Yeah, I agree. Or deals that that, Pond, that refinance. I love deals that refinance in year two or three, and you get talk talk more about that. Well, yeah. So Why? if you do a good value add deal, where an investor, you know, a sponsor gets in a deal, and it has you can create that margin of safety and create that equity, they they get a they get a loan that hopefully that they can prepay right or get out of within the next two or three years. So when they create this this increase in value, now their loan that was like maybe a sixty percent loan to value, they get to keep it at the same 60%, they can actually pull out more money. And when they pull out more money, they take that money and repay part of your equity. So it's de-risking the deal because you've gotten some of your equity back and you can take that equity and reinvest it, like you said, and have velocity of money and, and make more cash flow. So And still stay in the same deal and still get cash flow. And so then that's how it snowballs. I actually, I have a presentation on this where I, I show two deals with almost the exact same absolute returns but which one i would prefer is the one that where i get a bigger chunk of the money back sooner even though the the second deal might have a slightly higher absolute return i'll take the one where i get more of my money back quicker so because of that velocity of money that's that right we're talking about that's right yeah hans this was awesome thank you so much for joining us uh 
lot, lot of nuggets in there. Uh, where can people find you uh, after the show? Yeah, so we uh, go to our website. It's uh, just boxwilson.com, my last name. Um, I'm sure it's in your show notes, probably. Um, you can, you know, uh, email me. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me is just H-B-O-X at boxwilson.com. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn as well. And it's probably in the show notes as well. So happy to uh, chat with anyone at any time. Cool. Cool. And uh, as just like a reminder, uh, if you'd like to get access to our stream of private investment opportunities, uh, I include the ones, you know, of all the deals and sponsors I find, including uh, from Hans. Uh, if you'd like those, join our investment club and uh, kind of begin your journey into private investments. Visit uh, investwithpascal.com. And uh, with that, we will wrap up the show. Thank you again, Hans.